You're listening to Builder Funnel Radio. This is the Building a Family Business Show with Wes and Brooks Powell. Let's dive in. The Powell family construction business has been around for over 110 years. Over that time, it's evolved and been through four generations of the Powell family. What started as a new construction business building spec homes in the Seattle area evolved to building communities, remodeling, building custom homes, and then getting involved with property management. Today, the business currently owns and operates two retirement and assisted living facilities, several apartment buildings, and does third-party property management in the Seattle area with about 750 total doors under management. Over the last several decades, Wes and Brooks have seen it all when it comes to business evolution, family dynamics in the construction industry. This is the show where I work to extract their knowledge and experiences to help you navigate family dynamics, among other things, in your construction business. Let's dive into the show. Hey guys, did you know that 72% of client unhappiness is directly attributed to a lack of communication during projects? The team over at BuildBook has solved that problem once and for all with a tool that keeps all the conversations and decisions between you, your team, and your clients in one place. Their simple, powerful app helps you create daily logs, schedule and manage your client tasks, keep track of selections, process change orders, and so much more. I met the BuildBook team in Vegas at IBS earlier this year, where they were chosen as a finalist for the most innovative construction tool of 2020, which is saying a lot considering how many tools are actually out there. If you're looking to remove the stress from your projects, make your clients happier, and increase your profits, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. There's absolutely no risk to try it. So go ahead and hit pause and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 to take advantage of the trial and score the 45% off. This deal isn't available anywhere else. So I recommend at least trying out the software. All right, let's dive into today's show. Hey guys, welcome back to another edition of Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. As usual, I've got the the crew here. So Wes and Brooks, how are you guys doing today? Doing great. Doing pretty good, Spence. Good, good. Well, uh, today, today we're going to go a little bit different of a route because we... Got a question off the gram, as the cool kids say these days, and it was from a 200-person company, their construction company, and the question was, hey, we're considering an ESOP, but we want to keep the family business and maintain that like family connection. You know, Are there some other options? So the three of us were, were kind of talking about this and figured this was a good opportunity to to lay out the different options, you guys can kind of share some of your experience with different types of entities. But uh, yeah, I guess, Brooks, where, where do we start? You know, uh, ESOP is kind of a big topic, but there's there's lots of different business structures that you can set up, right? Oh, Brooks, so before you start, though, I mean, really, I think we should just do a disclaimer on this show, which is, hey, uh, we are not professionals. <laughs> so, uh, you need to, not attorney, the way not they say you should people, consult yeah. your, uh, yeah, consult your tax, uh, tax professional. A lot of opinions going on around here. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, we're just, we're just some owners that have experienced a few different things. And so, yeah, we want to give you our insights. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, an ESOP is uh, employee stock ownership plan. 
and pretty complicated. So before we dive into that, there's some other you know ownership plans that you can have or ways you can own companies. And and I'm sure our listeners have done all of the above. You know, so one of them is a lot of us start out as a sole proprietor. You know, you're just going to be one owner and usually running under your social security number and you may or may not be into doing a separate tax return. Partnerships, you can maybe you're in partners with somebody. It might be your spouse. It might be, you know, someone else you, you started out with and partnerships have their own tax return and a separate tax ID number. And then, you know, Wes, maybe you want to pick up on the, the C Corp and the S Corp. I think we tend to think of C Corps more like our typically, you know, your larger companies, your publicly traded companies, they have stock, correct? And the stock can be purchased and sold. It doesn't have to be a publicly traded C Corp. It could be a privately owned C Corp. And an example would be that, you know, our, our father had a C Corp for many, many years early on in his construction uh, experience. And this is before the S Corp was invented. And we're going to talk about the S-Corp in just a second, but the main disadvantage of a C-Corp, I mean, I guess the advantage is you have stock and so you can sell stock to somebody else and it's a good way to transfer ownership. It's also its own separate entity. So the way they think about corporations in a legal sense is that they are their own person. So you can sue a corporation that doesn't necessarily mean that you're suing a particular private party. So, you know, the corporation is a person, so that can be sued and that that provides some corporate shield to the owners of the corporation. So that's that's one of the reasons that corporations exist is for that, that shield. So that being said, if you had a C-Corp and you had stock, you're going to file your own separate tax return. And in a C-Corp, the C-Corp is actually going to pay its own taxes because it's a person. And so it's going to pay its own taxes. It's going to have these retained earnings. But when the owner wants to take money out of the C corporation, he has to actually, he or she has to pay taxes again, personally. So that was the biggest, yeah. Yeah. They take it out as a dividend. Yeah, exactly. They take it as a dividend and, and pay taxes on the dividend. So in a lot of ways, the C corp, fell out of favor for smaller organizations just because of this double taxation issue. Um, like in our dad's case, you know, eventually he was able to convert his C-Corp to an S-Corp. And so the S-Corp just basically rolls the income or loss from your corporation right up into your personal return. And so it's all there together. And so you only get taxed once, at whatever your overall personal rate is, it just kind of rolls up into that your tax account can walk you through all that. But I think that's why generally you don't see C-Corps anymore for smaller organizations. Uh, there's just, they're too clunky and there's definitely tax disadvantages to that. But the S-Corp, you know, Brooks will probably talk about LLCs because we're talking about a lot of LLCs a lot on the program, just as a great way to hold real estate. But LLCs can elect to report as S-corporations, which just means that they take their taxes or their income and they just roll it right up into the to the owners of the LLC's personal returns. So, Brooks, do you want to talk about LLCs at all or LLPs? Yeah, one of the other things, uh, Wes, that was popular back in the 90s as yeah. C-corp fell out of favor, 
uh, especially in real estate, were limited partnerships. And limited mm-hmm. partnerships provided a liability shield, just like C Corp did, but allowed him more tax benefits. And that was the first time where you could get a limited partnership, where you could own real estate in a, in a minority way and have a K-1, or basically your income as a K-1 would then flow up to your personal return. And about 10 years later than the next thing that came are limited liability companies, LLCs, again, giving you liability protection, then those would roll up, produce a K-1. And then as Wes said, those limited liability corporations, LLCs, now most of them elect to be a sub S. So everything just flows up to your tax return. So you're not stuck with being taxed twice. And they're great for real estate because any distributions you take flow into your or income flow into your tax return. And when you sell, then you're just taxed at the capital gains rate versus a regular income rate. So that's why real estate is good for that. And construction companies are perfect. We've had several construction companies set up as LLCs. And um, if you're in the development, then you, know, you have a different LLC for every project you do. But the neat thing about LLCs is it allows you to, the owners can elect a manager and that manager you know, runs that LLC. And that's a great way to, you can have different ownership structures, but have you know, different managers. So managers don't necessarily have to be an owner. They could be a minority owner or something like that. So that's, that's why the LLC, I think, became very popular with people in, in real estate or in construction. With the LLC, why would you choose to elect to file as a S-Corp or not elect? What's the, the primary difference there? I don't have any idea. It's just what my tax accountant told me to do. So. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, I mean, essentially what you're, you just want to make sure that you can, you just elect to file as an S because then you don't have to file a separate return. This is my I, understanding. I think, originally, I, mean, I think now we still create a separate re- return that creates a K-1. That K-1 flows up to your personal return. And so you don't That's file right. yeah. taxes for the L. You do, a, you do a return, but you don't file it. So you're only filing one return now. It's your personal return. And behind it are, are any K-1s that come from limited liability companies or any kind of any kind of LLC. I mean, I think the nice thing too about an LLC or an S-Corp, either way, is that it is pretty easy then to take cash out if you need to, because you just do what's called a AAA distribution. I mean, you're going to keep track of how much equity you've built up in, in your equity section of your balance sheet. And when you need to take some cash out, provided you have some cash available and it's not tied up in projects or something, you've already paid the taxes on whatever's in that account and you can just pick the cash out. So that, that makes it pretty easy too. So then with the, the question of the ESOP, then is that just a, a matter of whatever structure you have currently, then you're looking at converting it to that? Just like you said, your dad was converting his C-Corp to an S-Corp. I think you have, you have a C-Corp or a sub-S or a C-Corp filing as a sub-S. Then you have shares, and then I think that's where the ESOP you know comes into play, you know, employee stock ownership plan, and it has to do with you know they're popular if you have multiple employees. So yeah, if you do have two or three hundred employees, you're trying to, and you maybe 
one of your goals is you're trying to get ownership or you're actually just trying to get equity to your employees to help them, you know, in further their, their financial goals. And, you know, that might be one of the reasons for doing that. That allows you to do it because you can transfer stock over time or, uh, as Wes, you were talking, I guess, you know, people could get a loan and maybe you could explain how that might yeah, work. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Level. Let's, I guess let's predicate this part of the discussion by saying, ESAPs are super complicated and we don't know a, a ton about them other than I think what, I, well, in terms of the loan, what you do is you take out a loan or the ESOP would take out a loan and that's how the cash gets paid out to the owners who are setting up the ESOP. So part of the ESOP, right, is that the original owners of the company want to take their cash out and transfer ownership to their employees. And that's how, of course, the employees are going, well, we don't have enough cash to do this. So there has to be a loan from an entity that is lent to the ESOP and then the ESOP can buy, buy shares or however that ownership transfer happens from the original owners. So I, in a lot of ways you go, wow, an ESOP, that's great. That's an employee driven company. And I think that's one question that the family has to ask or the original owners has to ask is what are, what are their goals you know, around that? Are they, are they trying to transfer ownership to future family members and employees? I mean, are they really trying to keep the original flavor of the company to be a family company and want the family to be driving that culture and everything? Or do they want the employees in the future to be driving the culture of the company? Because your culture is going to be driven by whoever's running the company and whoever owns the company, right? So I think that's one of those basic questions which would help you decide what ownership structure you'd want to have is, is what's our long-term, long-term goals. Yeah. I think I would always recommend, you know, take a step back. And as you're, as you're thinking about different plans, you know, before you start thinking about the different plans, have you taken that step back and figured out and talked to all the stakeholders to see, you know, what are, what's important to them? You know, you, you as owner, family members that are, Maybe aren't stakeholders yet, but you see as potential stakeholders, or maybe they're st- they're family members and employees. So they're they may have a different perspective working in the business. And then you have employees or stakeholders, suppliers, trades or stakeholders, and try to think about and ask the questions: What are people interested in? Because you might work on a plan and find out, oh, nobody was actually that interested in that plan, and you know. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like that happens a lot too. You just start, you get, you get an idea in your head and you go, Oh, this, this could work. And you kind of start charging down that path. And whether you go through with it or not is, is one thing, but I think you guys have mentioned this on several, you know, of our conversations in the past is taking that step back and going, what am I really trying to accomplish? But then also starting that conversation because you've mentioned several times, there's so many other people that it affects or that are involved and they have, varying degrees of interest and passion or, you know, desire to be involved at some level. So, you know, yeah, it I sounds that, like that's the first, really the first step. I think so. I mean, cause one of the big mistakes we can make I mean, just as people in general is that we assume that everyone has the same desires, interests, and motivations that we do. So as a business owner, lots of times you're going, well, I wanted to own a business. Wouldn't everyone want to own a business? <laughs> and what you find is that, well, that's not really true necessarily. And so 
I think sometimes, I, I think with the general idea of an ESOP, where the employees are going to own the business, the question is, is do they want to? Do they really want to be in that place? And do you want to go through the difficulties and all the challenges of setting up an ESOP? Sounds like they're fairly complicated and fairly expensive to administer. You know, there's yearly charges that you have to, you know, lots of filing, uh, different reports you need to file. You know, you've got things like employees coming on and off the plan as people quit and or hire on. How does all of that work? It's pretty pretty complicated. So you really got to have a strong desire on the ownership, you know, on the employee side to be part of this company and make all that work because it's going to siphon some of your bottom line away. Well, yeah, for sure. And it's also, you know, if you there, it's going to be as complicated or more complicated than probably more complicated than your 401k. So where you have third-party administration and a lot of expenses that you think, and you know, if you're thinking, oh, I just want to set up a 401k for my employees, so it'll be great, it'll be good for me. And you find out, oh, it's, it actually is expensive. And the ESOP will be that same kind of thing. But it, I think anytime you're trying to transfer equity and ownership, it is complicated. So you just try to have to decide, yeah, what's your what's your commitment? So a lot of times when you're, especially on the Anytime you bring someone into ownership who is not a family member or you haven't worked with for a long time, you know, as Wes said, they may want to come and go. And you're like, oh, now I have to write a check, which I was just thinking everybody would just own their stock. And, you know, so. Brooks, did you ever read the book, Great Gaming Business, Jack Stack? I believe that that company is a pretty famous book about bringing a company back from the brink of uh, going out of business. And I believe that they ended up being an ESOP. And so I just recommend maybe that's that's a, a book to read or research that a little bit. It's also about open book management, which right. is, hey, let's share all of our numbers with everybody and let's use that transparency to help us move the company forward. Yeah, I think that's actually a great recommendation for a book to read or at least read the cliff notes on it as you're thinking about it. And you saw it does explain some of the trials and tribulations of doing that and how to, how to make it successful, for sure. Yeah, uh, and it's just a fascinating story anyway. You know, so yeah, it's, it, it, it's like a novel. So you guys have yeah. mentioned that the, the ESOP is pretty complicated. You know, I guess what are kind of the just cliff notes on what are the huge benefits to going that route? And then maybe what are a couple of those, you know, things that are, are in the con column that make it more complicated or, you know, sure. that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I think the the first thing is just that you've got a built-in buyer, right? So if you are looking to exit, you go, okay, well, I'm just going to I'm gonna set up an ESOP and I'm going to basically sell to my employees. And so there's some benefits to that. Well, there's some tax advantages if you meet a certain amount of criteria. So there might be some, it might provide a way for ownership to exit and, you know, take some of their equity as the, over time. So there might be some ways to do that it puts ownership for employees within reach where an employee might not have an opportunity to create some equity in something that they're working on. You know, for most people, you know, owning a house is their number one chance to create equity. And if you work for a company where they'll actually sell shares or transfer shares as part of a compensation program, I mean, that's a great program. And so both the owner can benefit and the employee can benefit, but you have to meet all these different regulations. So it's if you're used to working in an environment that's not that's not very regulatory, you might find the ESOP a little bit. You're just like, man, man there's a lot to do here. To, to all I want to do is just transfer some shares. Well, so there's 
you're, it's going to be very regulated. So a lot of advantages for the you know, owner employee, employee and owner benefit for sure. If you've followed Builder Funnel for even a little bit, you know we're huge believers in the inbound marketing methodology. One of the most important phases is the client delight phase. By delighting customers, you turn them into promoters of your business and your brand. The only way to get people to go out of their way to sing your praises is to wow them throughout the process. This is something the guys over at BillBook are helping you do. Better communication leads to better outcomes. And that means communication at every level. Daily logs, client selections, punch lists, and change orders. Today, that communication gets super fragmented between email, text, and phone calls. And inevitably, things fall through the cracks. With BuildBook, everything funnels through one simple app, keeping everyone on the same page and your clients filled with delight. No more digging through texts or random emails looking for client approvals. Just one place to see everything going on with a project. And as a reminder, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. All right, let's get back to the show. But once again, I think on the, on the flip side, you do have the high cost. And I think the, this, the high structure of it with your reporting, you know, if you take a misstep, then does that void your ESOP or, you know, their tax consequences, negative tax consequences from not hitting all your marks just right? I think the original question, though, Spencer, was kind of framed about how do I keep the family feel of the business? I think we're thinking of doing an ESOP, but we want to continue the family feel. And I think if that's that's kind of your driving purpose is, hey, I want to the family field, like the family company, you know, that's the, the culture and all of that. I don't know that you would have to go with an ESOP. So once again, what are you really trying to accomplish? Are you trying to transfer ownership of the family business down to family members? Okay, that would be one potential goal. Another goal might be, well, I want to keep the family feel, or I just want to keep the culture alive, but family members don't have to be directly involved with management, that might be something different. So I think, once again, you have to look at your situation, step back and go, well, who do I have? I'm not going to live forever. I need to transfer this business. I need to move on. You know, I I have some other things I want to do in my life. You know, whether you're thinking of doing this at age 50 or you're thinking of doing it at age 70 or 75, you know, you have to start looking forward. And if if you have family members that are involved in the business now, then you have to start talking to them about that. And you have to make some calls about, are those people qualified to run this business? You might have some family members working in the business that have worked there for 20 years, but they're not qualified to run the business, but they're great support and they help with the family culture and all of that. So how do you deal with that? I would uh, encourage people to take, take two more steps back from even where what Wes was saying, and you know, whoever you're, you know, if, if you're involved in the business just by yourself, you know, go take a weekend or a week and just go away and take stock of where you, you know, what your age is, where you are in your life, where you want to go, how much money you need to get there, and once you figure that out, then meet with your partners, whomever your partners with, and just be frank and say, hey, here's where I'd like to get to. How would this all work out with what you guys want to do? Maybe your partners haven't thought about that at all. 
and then they go and think about it, come back together. Once the, the current ownership group is on the same page and everyone understands, oh, I have a five-year horizon or I have a 10-year horizon or I'm never leaving here, then that helps you figure out what kind of plan you want to move forward with. But if you don't do that very initial work, you'll end up working on a plan that everyone's like, well, why are we doing that? That didn't, you know, I want to be gone in 24 months or I'm never leaving. Why would I give shares to some, you know, to some employees? I think that's, and being honest about what you think you want to do. It, this is not the time to be cagey. You know, this is like, Hey, <laughs> yeah. what right. I like to do with my life. This, and, and by being honest and forthright with people, you'll just get there a lot quicker versus, you know, hiding the ball all the time. So. And sometimes we start our businesses because, hey, we need a paycheck. We need to put food on the table. And yeah. that's how that business starts. But at some point, it takes on a life of its own. And that's that point where, as Brooke said, you really have to analyze what your ultimate goals are. Do you, for some people, their business is just a means to an end, which is perfectly fine. For other people, their business is their creation. It is their masterpiece. And that's the important thing for them. And so they want that business to go on. And so that's a very different perspective than the person who says, my business is a means to an end and I don't really care. You know, I want to take my cash out and I want to, you know, I'm going to move on from that business at some point. And, and the, so you're going to have very different strategies. Yes, I would encourage, you know, encourage, uh, you know the, the person the question came from is just, you know, start, you know, take a few steps back. Maybe they've done all this work, but anybody should take a few steps back before you come up with, I mean, at one point in our company, we're like, okay, we're going to provide, we're LLC as filing as a sub S. We're like, okay, we're going to, we're looking at giving ownership to some key employees. Well, we sat down and had some interesting conversations as owners. We had interesting conversations with some of these employees it turned out the employees just were not interested. They're like, you know what? We're happy in where we're at. We don't want to take on an ownership role because we don't want the responsibility. We don't want the liability. And as you have those conversations, when people really when recognize what that means to be an owner or a minority owner, all of a sudden, there may be very few people that are really that interested in it. So you could, you could come up with your whole plan and it turns out, oh, Nobody really interested. So again, talking to stakeholders, I think is that is that. Yeah, and, and so I think that's a good point, Brooke. So when you're having those conversations, were you thinking? Well, I guess what was the purpose of transferring or transferring some of those? What was your thought between between what you wanted to get out of moving some of those shares to employees? What we wanted for us, what we wanted to get out of it was we wanted someone to take over the company. And, you know, cause we, we had spent, you know, 40 years working really hard on the, on the name and the, and yeah. the culture. And so we thought, well, this is, we were really very willing to, you know, not, you know, not necessarily give the company, but for very low cost after we took our equity out, say, Hey, well, well, you just keep on rolling. And there just wasn't anybody who was interested in making that commitment. So for us, what was our goal? Our goal was, Hey, it'd be nice if the company could keep going because we've set up this whole machine. And okay, yeah. So you feel like, gee, this. Well, in that way, I mean, it's a little bit like we're talking about before. In that case, it was your your baby, your creation, yeah. 
So you're thinking, oh, I do want my, you know, we kind of created this cool thing and we'd like to see that progress yeah. a little bit further, you know, don't know how far, but a little bit further. I was, the reason I was asking is because in our company, I was looking to get some of my key employees more engaged in the company and really feel like they had some skin in the game and would help it grow. And so I had looked at same sort of thing, giving some stock to employees. My brother-in-law, who's a very, uh, very good mergers and acquisitions attorney, <laughs> uh, he suggested, hey, you may not want to do that. And he said, you may want to do something that they've done a lot of, which is called phantom stock. So the idea is that you can you can give phantom shares to employees as a motivational piece or an ownership, ownership without ownership. So a phantom share of stock duplicates the activity of a regular share of stock. So if the value of the company goes up and the shares go up in value, then the phantom shares go up in value as well. So you could give these shares. And that's what I did. I gave a certain number of shares to some of my key managers and they had to vest you know, those shares over a period of time, you know, like three years or so. So it also helped tie them to the company. The reason I'm telling you this story is because you can have unintended consequences of what can happen with these types of things. You think, oh, this is great. I'm going to get some shares, or in this case, phantom shares. This will help, and they're going to vest over time. And then those employees will be really tied to the company. They'll be very interested in moving it forward and seeing it grow. What I found was, and this would be different with every set of employees, but in this particular case, some of those employees who received those phantom shares, they weren't happy. I mean, they weren't happy in the sense it didn't probably because they didn't see how they could directly impact the value of their shares by their day-to-day activities. Sometimes so you can do that through either, bonuses. Right? Yeah. So they didn't change their actions, which is kind of what I what I was looking for. You know, hey, okay, people will show up even earlier. <laughs> None of that happened, which was the positive side of what, what I wanted to get out of it. And because of the vesting, they basically were hanging around to get their vesting. <laughs> so, hey, I don't want to leave. And you see that. You, you talk to people that, are, that have their vesting in particular invest, um, shares of their company, and they're going, well, I don't want to leave till I get this uh, vesting done. But as soon as that vesting's done, I'm out of here. So uh, basically, I, I managed to keep some unhappy people, <laughs> which was really not beneficial to my company. Uh, so anyway, you just have to think about what your consequences are. Your situation. What we went with was trying to get our compensation program correct to mm-hmm. get employees' uh, goals in alignment with our goals. And so we, and I think having heard your story previously, Wes, I was like, oh, we're not. I'm not into the phantom stock or anything like that. So we just know. <laughs> That's right. So you learned from that. Yeah. So we just went with a really great compensation bonus program, commission program that that said, hey, if the employee is successful, we're successful. Right. And that and that, and that worked better because when it was over, it was over. And uh, we didn't have to write any checks later. And you kind of it kind of aligned the the income and expenses in the right areas. So companies having a good year, everybody's having a good year, companies having a bad year, everybody's kind of having a you know a bad year. So that 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 we I steered away from the phantom stock or any stuff because of, of because of that. Now, uh, in doing, a, you know, Brooks did some research on ESOPs, and one of the things he, that was pointed out around the ESOPs is just that you do have a built-in buyer in the sense that you have an employee pool to buy, but generally speaking, 
because the company has to be valued for the ESOP, those valuations tend to come in lower than what would happen if you went out in the competitive marketplace to sell yeah. your company to a private buyer. And so you might realize, you know, I don't know, 20% less or something like that for the value of the company. So if your if your goal was to maximize your gain out of your company, and that was so once again, what's your goal? You know, well, maximize gain, then you might say, well, no, an ESOP's not for me. I want to, I want to go with a straight sale. Now I will say that you can still go back to key employees and say, would you like to buy the company? Sure. You know, you don't have to set up an ESOP. You can say, I would, you know, I want my company to go on. These people I know, I know they can run the company, they're in key positions. You know, there should there might be someone here who would be interested in buying, and then you can work out a, a deal with them. It's all a straight purchase, yeah, yeah, so. yeah, straight purchase. But you know, and you can make it easy for them to get in and get working on that on that sale. So going back to the original question, if if it sounds like there's a couple of components going on here, you know, they they want to maintain the family feel or aspect and I'm kind of reading into it. We're just making sure. guesses, but I think it, it gives us some different scenarios for people to think through. Um, so if we want to keep a family feel and culture to the company, like family's got to be involved probably at some level, whether the next generation are minority owners, or maybe like you said, Wes, they're working in the company, but they're not qualified to take over and run the company. So they're involved. And so maybe the goal is, Hey, we want to bring in some of the employees into ownership. Maybe we're not going the ESOP route and we want to bring in some key people that are going to be here. They can run it. You know, what are maybe some paths to explore with them? Could, could they just become minority owners and maybe that, you know, helps that that gets them in the game, but it may be, you know, between family, family still is the majority owner. Cause it sounds like there's a legacy component behind, you know, behind this question. Like we want to keep that going. I think if you don't have anyone well, first off, I, I think one way you could accomplish that is you can keep all the shares of the company in the family in some way. So if you don't have a particular family member that's qualified to run it on a day-to-day basis, that doesn't mean you have to lose that family character. I would say that you want the best person available to run the company. The family character and the culture of the company can be driven by family if you set up an op, you know a board that supervises the top person and on that bar board are key family members and they know their task is to provide that cultural piece and make sure that that's being honored honored in the operation of the company it's not as easy as if a family member is running it and has a good grasp on that family culture but that's one way it might be it might be more balanced in the in the way that and depending again you know, taking those two or three steps back, finding out what the, the current owners want to do. If you're trying to keep that family culture, yep, but maybe there's nobody at just the right age at this point, or maybe there's nobody with the right skill set. And that idea Wes suggested, which is you could set up a family board, which can be, which the, the ownership can be within that board. Uh, there can be more family members that have ownership stakes and the family members rotate through the board, but the, the family's job is to manage the CEO of that company and keep the, the family culture and, the, and and make sure that company is doing the things that the family members want. And a lot of times that can come from, you know, the, the whoever started the company, if 
if this is first generation or second generation, someone kind of codifying, you know, what is the family culture? What does the family stand for? What does the family mean? And what does this company mean? So that as you go down through the generations, people are able to say, oh, yeah, well, that's what grandpa, why he started the company. And that's what he believed. And we're going to continue to do that. You know, without that, it's just, you know, a bunch of family members getting together going, well, that's what we want to do today. Right. So you need, you need to do some of that groundwork to make it, to make it work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Brooks. I, I will say, as you go down to the generations, it's going to get harder and harder and harder. And the reason it will get harder is because you start generation one, 100% ownership with probably one or two people, you know, the founders, and then it fractionalizes to the next generation and then it fractionalizes again, just depending on how that ownership passes down from generation to generation. But most likely, in most cases, it's going to fractionalize. And so all of a sudden, and you certainly read about this in, in different business publications where you have a third generation of family members that are on a board and they're fighting with each other and you know they don't get along. And so it's kind of a, a bad situation. So, and that's even more likely to happen if you don't do what Brooks is talking about, which is what are we about? What is our culture? What's important to us as a family? And that can be set from the beginning. And then each generation has to be pretty careful to protect that and root out, <laughs> I hate to say it, the family members that don't support that, you know, either buy them out, you know, that's a possibility, but try to weed out the, the apples that just don't happen to fit in your barrel from a cultural uh, standpoint of what you want to represent as a company. So as you guys are talking about this, you kind of said, hey, we need to put the culture down on paper, kind of establish like this is what the company stands for and this is our overall kind of mission or core values or, you know, is that a document? And then how does that, you know, how does that get enforced, you know, as you move through generations, you know, is, are there structures that you can set up to make sure those kind of guidelines continue? Yeah, I think that, I think you go to uh, a board structure and you, and actually operate, you know, you can set up a, you can set up a board and then you could, you know, through that board, you could, you could work on transferring shares of ownership and you could lay out a plan and depends on your age. You know, if you're 75, you know, you, you better start getting busy because your runway is a lot shorter than if you're 50, but in another way, you might have a better idea of who might be the best family members to be on that board because people are older. You know, if you're, you're 50, your kids are in high school and you're like, well, I'm trying to set something up, but I don't know who's going to be interested or not interested. But again, as the owner, you need to lay out the, you know, talk to the stakeholders, then lay out the best plan that you can. And you have to keep nurturing that plan through time, you know, on a regular basis and, and kind of get everybody. It's like, you know, herding cattle and not that I have cattle, but you know, <laughs> it's, you're trying to get everybody to go the same direction. You know, maybe it's like herding cats. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think you could you could assign that job to somebody on the board, which is sure. and pass that down. And you know, you are the keeper of the culture. So here are the things that we stand for. This is what is important to us as a family or to the original founders and what they want to have passed down. And so you have to actively search out one or multiple people that will keep that alive and 
keep bringing that to the forefront because at the board level and operational level, decisions are made all the time. And people talk about, well, what are your core values and all those types of things? Well, those really drive your decision making. So you have to have that uh, talked about frequently and at all levels of the company, but it's going to start at the board level. And if it's not there at the board level, then it's not going to happen at the, you know, operational level. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Jim. It's, uh, yeah, what are the core values of the company? Getting those, you know, I always call it codified. You have it written down mm-hmm. and refer back to them. And, it, you know, it's, you're talking about them uh, all the time. But, as, and that's the point you talk about all the time, right? And I think Brooks is always good to point that out because if you don't, it, it's not going to last. It'll just last for the whatever generation is really believes in that. And then the next generation. Yeah. Probably just drift away. Yeah. Yeah. Brutal reality. <laughs> Brutal reality. That's right. You know, if you think about it, if you think about it like a car, uh, you know, unless you drive your car and exercise that car and use it, you know, eventually the seals dry up, it leaks, it just breaks down and stops running from lack of use. And the same thing happens with your core values. Yeah, good point. You have to use your core values all the time. If you don't, it's just a matter of time and it'll all be gone. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, this discussion, we kind of explored a few different routes, but hopefully we we kind of answered the question or at least, you know, gave some thoughts and ideas on how to approach it. I guess as we wrap for today, you know, Brooks, what final takeaways or thoughts on this whole topic? My, my final takeaway is always make sure you've done the groundwork first before you come up with a, ta- a tactic. Just do the groundwork first, make sure everybody's on board and whatever plan you choose, circle back, circle back, circle back, you know, cause if this, if, it, if it's a multi-year plan or if it's a board or something, you know, someone's got to drive the process and make sure it all works. It, it's, it's not going to happen on its own. That's my thought. How about you, Wes? Right. As, as Brooks was saying, that just made me think about the difference between tactics and strategy again, which is, an ESOP or an LLC or any sort of ownership structure is just a tactic for executing whatever your, you know, your original strategy was, which is basically, you know, your action plan to achieve a goal. So as Brooke says, go back to your, do your homework. What are your goals? What's my general plan going forward? And then what's the tactic or the, the ownership structure that would work to get me to where I need to go? Cool. Yeah. Good advice. Well, again, hopefully, uh, you know, that that answered the question around ESOP or gave you some good direction. Complicated process, you know, so if you do go down that path, you know, there's going to be a lot of things to think through, a lot of structure to put in place, and and it'll be a lot of change. But there are other options and other routes that, uh, that you guys talked about today. So thanks again for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next week on Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. 